0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. You can also find our passage printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, We're actually going to be looking at several different passages today, but I'm going to be reading, uh, to begin with, I'm going to be reading the Matthew 26 passage, beginning in verse 17 down through verse uh, 29, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in Verse 17. Uh, If you saw my note on Friday, you know that we're going to be doing something a little bit different today and next Sunday with our sermons. I know we have some guests with us today, and so uh, just to let you know that our our typical uh, way we do our sermons is that uh, we go through books of the Bible and try to understand what God is teaching us uh, in an expositional way through the scriptures. Uh, but at times we take, uh, we take other parts of the Bible and look at more thematic kinds of things. We've done a series on the Ten Commandments and on the parables and various things like that. And uh, since we are going to be restarting the Lord's Supper, uh, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday after a six-month time period of not doing it, the session thought it might be helpful for us to do a couple sermons on the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so today and next Sunday, we'll have kind of more of a thematic uh, approach as we look at what the Bible says, still looking at what the Bible says, focusing on Scripture, uh, but looking at several different Scriptures to learn what they tell us about the Lord's Supper. So today we're going to be starting with Matthew chapter 26, and I'll begin in verse 17. Verse 17. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you and we pray that you would open our eyes and you would prepare our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit to understand your word and to be encouraged by it, be filled with hope. But also, Father, that you would move in us, that we would have an even greater love for you. And through that love, Father, that we would serve you in greater obedience in this week to come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the first time that you went to a Presbyterian church? I don't. The first time I went to a Presbyterian church, I was in my mother's womb. I've been a Presbyterian all my life. I have grown up in the Presbyterian church. My grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor. I have grown up learning the Bible stories and the practices of the church. And in the mainline Presbyterian church that I grew up in, the PCUSA, as a 12-year-old, all of the young people went through a process called confirmation. And I, too, went through that process. It was many weeks of a class where we were taught the doctrines and the practices of the church. And at the end of that class, became a member of the church and had the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. I have grown up in the Presbyterian Church all my life. First in the mainline church, and then when I turned around 15 years of age, I got involved with the PCA. And for the last 34 years, have been a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. I counted them up. I think over the years of my adulthood, I've been part of about 10 solid, biblically, confessional Presbyterian churches during my adulthood. I attended a Presbyterian seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and I've been ordained as a PCA minister for almost 25 years. I've served as a pastor in several different PCA churches as well as some of the PCA ministries. I tell you all of that to say this. I'm about as Presbyterian as you can get. And I also tell you this. I'm still learning what the Lord's Supper is all about. It is something that I continue to grow in my understanding, deepening my understanding and appreciation and desire to participate in the Lord's Supper. And maybe you are too. Presbyterian and Reformed churches understand the Lord's Supper a bit differently than most other believers, most other churches. We differ from the Roman Catholic Church. We don't believe that Jesus is literally, physically present in the elements. We differ from the Lutheran churches, because we don't believe that Jesus is physically present around, above, and under the elements. And we also differ with our evangelical brothers and sisters in Christ, because we don't believe that the Lord's Supper is, is just a memorial, is just a, a remembrance. Now, I realize that by differentiating ourselves from the Roman Catholic Church, from the Lutherans, and from most evangelicals, I have just described the church background of almost everybody in our church family. Almost all of us either are or have been new to the Reformed and Presbyterian understanding of the Lord's Supper. We understand the Lord's Supper is a time when Jesus is really, but spiritually present with us. That the Lord's Supper is a, is a genuine means of grace. That through the Lord's Supper, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is actually strengthening the faith of His people. Building assurance into our hearts and our minds. Giving us strength to lean and to fight against our sin. And to love the Lord with greater zeal. Through the Lord's Supper, we have a, a growing love that is built into us for fellowship and unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a real means of grace. And so that's the reason why the session thought that it might be helpful if we take just a couple of Sundays before we restart the Lord's Supper to see what the scriptures have to say about the Lord's Supper, to be reminded about what the Lord's Supper is, as well as what the Lord's Supper Does to deepen our understanding of it and our appreciation for it and to increase our expectation for it and our desire to partake. So today and next week, we're going to be looking at several passages in the New Testament that address the Lord's Supper. We're going to first look at what it is, and then we'll look at what it does. And I want you to take your bulletins and flip to the sermon outline. I know some of you don't pay any attention to that every week, and that's fine. But right now, just for a moment, I want you to look at it. Now, as you look at it, some eyebrows are going up because you see that this sermon has nine points in it. I don't want you to worry. That's actually the outline for today and next week. Today, we're just going to be looking at point one. We're going to be looking at what the Lord's Supper is. Next week, we'll look at what the Lord's Supper does. Now, one of the nice things about being what we call a confessional church, having a confession of faith that we hold to, is that we have centuries of deep thought of what the Bible says about things like the sacraments. For us, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. And some of the structure that you'll see in the sermon this week and next week, I'll be leaning on Chad Van Dixhorn's excellent commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. So, let's dive in today and looking at what the Lord's Supper is. What is the Lord's Supper? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is that it is something that has been instituted. It's been something that has been given to us by Jesus himself. If you'll look back at the Matthew passage that we read at the beginning uh, just a few moments ago, you'll notice in the the Matthew passage that Matthew is describing Jesus and the disciples getting ready to eat the Passover. That's what we read in verses 17 and following. And as they were sitting down and preparing to eat the Passover, as they were participating in that remembrance of the, the wonderful occasion of what had happened in the past of Israel's history... We read these verses in chapter 26, verses 26 and following. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was doing something absolutely remarkable in these verses. He was taking a long-standing practice of God's people throughout hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and he was changing the focus of it. He was changing the the the, the, the focus of the Passover. To show it now is going to be the Lord's Supper. Jesus had the power and the authority to change the celebration of something that God said would last forever. He explained to the disciples from that point on, the celebration would continue to be connected with the Passover, but it would be different. He showed them that the focus was no longer On remembering the events of the exodus and how God had saved his people out of Egypt. But now the focus was on the Messiah who had come, Jesus. He showed them that Jesus was the ultimate lamb that was slain, whose blood covered not the doorposts of their houses, but the cross. Jesus' body and his blood foreshadowed in the Exodus event and in the Passover celebration was now being fulfilled in their midst as Jesus was showing them that this was all pointing forward to him. Being fulfilled in his life and death and resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, a passage that's also printed for you in your bulletin that we'll be looking at more next week. In verse 21, he refers to the Lord's Supper as the table of the Lord, as the cup of the Lord. In other words, the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. It is his, it is he alone who has the authority to make the transition from the Passover to the Lord's Supper. Now I want, you to give you, I want to give you just two quick applications to be thinking about as you meditate on this truth. The first is this. The Lord's Supper is Jesus' Supper. He is the only one with the authority to take an Old Testament sacrament of Passover and transform it into the Lord's Supper. It is His table. So we must observe the Lord's Supper as Jesus instructs us to do. We can't just turn it into anything that we want or change the focus or change the meaning or change the purpose to fit our own circumstances. The Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. It is Jesus's and such as it is, we must celebrate it according to the ways that Jesus says we're to celebrate it. A second application on this particular point. As we read about how Jesus here was taking something that was such a time-honored practice of the church, of of these men that were gathered together in the house of this unnamed man to celebrate the Passover together, as we see that Jesus takes it and transforms it into what it was foreshadowing and pointing toward Him, we're reminded of the continuity of the entire Bible. Jesus was showing the disciples at this last Passover meal, That the exodus and the Passover in the Old Testament was ultimately pointing to him. It's just as Jesus showed the two disciples after his resurrection as he was walking on the road to Emmaus. He opened the Old Testament, it says, and they, they were shown by Jesus how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. The Bible from the beginning to the end is unified. It is the story of God's pursuit of his people redeeming them through the Messiah that had been foreshadowed in the Old Testament and was now fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, once you start to understand that, once you start to see the continuity of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, it will revolutionize how you read the scriptures. You'll see this one story that unfolds as we see the creation that God does and we see the fall and we see sin coming into the world and we see the promise of redemption and then we see the fulfillment of that redemption in Jesus and the promise as we looked so recently in Revelation of the consummation of all things. One story in four chapters with one central plotline: God's pursuit of His people. The Lord's Supper is something that is instituted, it is given to us by Jesus. Secondly, and this is really the probably the most important of these four things for today, the Lord's Supper is both a sign and a seal. I want you to look again at the Matthew 26 passage. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then if you'll scan down in your uh, your copy of, the, of the, the passages in the bulletin, or if you're looking in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, another passage that we often read as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, looking at verse... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're around Trinity Presbyterian Church, if you're around a PCA church very long, you'll hear us refer to the Lord's Supper as both a sign and a seal of the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which has been poured out. So what does it mean when we speak about the Lord's Supper being a sign and a seal? Well... Let's talk about the sign first. That's probably a little less difficult for us to understand. Perhaps less controversial. What is a sign? A sign points to something else. And so the Lord's Supper is a sign that points us to Jesus' death on the cross. Isn't that what Jesus said? He took the elements and he said, this element of bread is to point you to my body, which is given for you. And this Element of uh, of fermented juice is given to you for the sign to point you to my blood, which has been shed or which will be shed on the cross. The Lord's Supper is a sign that points us to all that is accomplished through Jesus's death on the cross, his redemption of his people, his atonement to cover the sins of his people. If you think about it, there are lots of signs in the Old Testament. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, both were signs. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was a sign pointing forward to how God would fulfill His promises and paying for the sins of His people through Jesus. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign. Passover itself was a sign. But none of the signs that we read about, including this one, the Lord's Supper, ever saved anybody they always pointed to the god who saves his people the lord's supper is a sign it points us to Jesus' life a life of perfect love and obedience and a sacrificial death on the cross it points us to the gospel of god's grace and mercy we also believe that the lord's supper is a seal Perhaps this is a little bit more challenging to understand how the Lord's Supper functions as a seal. I don't have it printed for you in your bulletin, uh, but you could later this afternoon look at Romans chapter 4. It's a very interesting passage that Paul... Uses there, Paul is writing there in Romans four, where he's explaining about Abraham having faith in the Old Testament, and he says this very interesting thing in verse eleven of chapter four. He as he's explaining about Abraham in the Old Testament, he says this: Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now, what does that mean? But well, what is a seal? I don't mean the animal, the animal that you see in the ocean. A seal in the ancient culture was something that declared the truth or the authenticity of something else. In ancient cultures, it was often a wax seal that would be put on some kind of important document that would be going from one place to another. It was... It was a wax seal that would declare when the person received the document after it had traveled from wherever it was coming, that that document was legitimate, that it was authentic, that it was real, that it was true. So listen, this is how the Lord's Supper is a seal. The Lord's Supper is a seal in that it declares and guarantees God's promises and blessings are true and real and authentic for true believers in Christ who partake in faith. Now, this is where people can sometimes get tripped up. So let me give you two important distinctions. A seal does not make something real it doesn't cause something to be real it only declares or certifies or testifies to what is already true and real let me try to illustrate this for you Uh, dr nyman one of our elders uh, went to school to become a doctor Eventually, I think he went to school to become something else to start off with. Eventually, he became, went to school to become a doctor. He went to school and he learned all of the things that he needed to learn. He went through the training. He gained the knowledge and the skills that were necessary to serve as a doctor. And once all of the conditions were met in his educational program, then he was given what? A diploma. He was given a diploma, and that diploma certifies or testifies or seals what is true. That diploma doesn't cause Dr. Nyman to be a doctor. But it testifies, it certifies, it seals what is true. If I took Dr. Nyman's medical school diploma and I scratched out his name and I put my name on it and I hung it in my office, I would not be made a doctor just by doing that. So too with the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't make someone or cause someone to be a Christian. But for the one who partakes in the Lord's Supper with true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper declares and seals what is already true of them, that God's promises and blessings are truly theirs. A seal does not make something real. A second distinction for you, just because someone takes the Lord's Supper, it does not guarantee God's blessings and promises are real for them. The Lord's Supper only serves as a seal guaranteeing that God's promises and blessings will be for those who partake with true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The the Lord's Supper does things for us. We're going to talk about that next week. The Lord's Supper does things for us, but it doesn't do those things for us just because we take it. The Lord's Supper only works when the conditions are met. And that condition is genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When there is true faith present, then the Lord's Supper is a genuine seal of the promise and the blessings of the Lord being ours, being applied to God's people. That's the reason why we say that those who are to take the Lord's Supper are those who have made a genuine profession of faith. We're not trying to be mean uh, to unbelievers or to those who haven't made a genuine profession of faith. But because of what the Lord's Supper is, it wouldn't make sense for someone who is not in Christ, someone who has not made a, a, a genuine public profession of faith in Christ to partake. So, the Lord's Supper is both a sign and a seal. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is something that is to be observed in the church. Again, if you'll turn back to the Matthew passage, you'll see in Matthew chapter 26 again, just to be reminded that the context was Jesus and the disciples gathered together. We see that in verse 20, when it was evening, Jesus, he reclined at table with the twelve, with his disciples With the ones that he had called to be the beginning portion of what would become the church worldwide. And in 1 Corinthians 11, if you flip back to that passage, I didn't read uh, all of the context there. But the context of 1 Corinthians 11, where we read uh, the passage that we often read in the Lord's Supper. The context of that passage is that Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. He was giving instructions to the church on how they were to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So here's the reminder. The Lord's Supper wasn't given just to Peter. It wasn't given just to Peter, James, and John. It wasn't given to just a few select people that were close to Jesus. The Lord's Supper was given to the people of God. It was meant to be observed and celebrated by the people of God in God's church. Now, I have some more on this next week, but let me offer just a quick application of this particular point as we recognize that the Lord's Supper is given given by God Himself, by Jesus Himself to the church to be observed and celebrated in the church, it reminds us that we're part of something bigger. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, we remember that God's people have been doing this for millennia. It, It reminds us that we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of the universal church of God. All of God's people throughout history Those who exist now as well as those who are in heaven who participated in the Lord's Supper before they died. We're we're a part of this universal church. And as we partake in faith and true faith, then we are connected to this true universal people of God throughout the ages. And how would that encourage us? We're not alone. But it's not just being a part of the universal church as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are reminded that we are connected right now to the visible church of God. To all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ who are alive now. We partake in the Lord's Supper and we recognize that we do that in unity and fellowship with those that we are gathered together to do that with. But it's bigger than that. We also recognize that we are connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ alive here in Rochester, in southeastern Minnesota, and all over the world. Maybe especially as Christians have gone through seasons of persecution or pandemics. And have not been able to partake in the Lord's Supper as often as they normally would. When they finally get to take it once again, they appreciate in even greater ways this powerful picture of the unity and the fellowship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not alone. We're in this together. Despite the myriads of differences on important and unimportant matters, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a family We are fed by the Lord through His Word, through His sacraments, through the Lord's Supper. We all hold to the same promise that Jesus gave us, that one day He will eat and drink new with us in His Father's kingdom. And so we're filled with this encouragement and this hope. We are not alone. We're in this together. Fourth and lastly for today, the Lord's Supper is something that's to be observed until Jesus returns. If you look back at the First Corinthians 11 passage, you'll see again in those familiar verses, verses 24 through 26, particularly verse 26, after Paul gives the instructions, reminding them what Jesus said, this is my body which is for you, this is the cup, new covenant my blood. And then in verse 26 he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, he's, until He comes. In the Matthew passage, Jesus told His disciples that in eating the bread and drinking the cup, they were remembering Him. And the sense there is that they would be remembering Him over and over and over again. This is part of what makes a sacrament a sacrament. It's given to us by Jesus... And we're told to do it until he returns. There are lots of ways that that God's people can go about remembering Jesus and his sacrifice throughout their entire lives. They can remember Jesus. But the Lord's Supper is one of the things that God has given to us for that. Jesus Nor the Bible tell us how often or how frequently we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's left up to the wisdom and the discretion of the local leaders. But the Lord's Supper is clearly something that is to be observed and celebrated by God's people around the world until Jesus comes back. So just one final application for today. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. But it is not the cause of grace. The Lord's Supper is not of the essence of our faith. It is a means. It is a tool that God gives to us and uses to nourish and to strengthen our faith. But it is not the substance of our faith. Jesus is the substance of our faith. Think of it this way. When the thief on the cross put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... Jesus didn't stop the crucifixion to take everybody off the crosses so that they could go gather in Jerusalem with the other believers and celebrate the Lord's Supper before he died. It didn't rise to that level of importance. It wasn't of the essence of his faith. He said, no, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief. God's people throughout history have had times when they've had to go without the Lord's Supper. During intense persecution, sometimes while they've been separated from God's people, and even during pandemics. It'll be a significant blessing when God's people are able to partake of the Lord's Supper again. It will be for us next Sunday or whenever it is that our people are able to partake in the future. But we must always remember this truth. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It is a means by which God helps us to grow in our faith, but it is not the essence of our faith. So that helps us to keep things in perspective, especially when we have to go a season, perhaps sometimes a long season, without partaking. God will provide everything that we need to keep us as his very own. So, the Lord's Supper is something that is instituted. It is given to us by Jesus. It is a sign and a seal of of his working, of his blessing, of his grace, his mercy to us as we come and partake in faith. It is something that is to be observed in the church, and it is something that is to be observed until Jesus returns. I heard a pastor friend tell a somewhat famous story that's often referred to as Beethoven's Kiss. Now, as with many stories like this, there's some debate among scholars and historians about how, well, if this story actually took place, and if it did, how exactly it took place. But the picture that it gives to us is helpful. helpful. Andor Folds was a 20th century famous Hungarian-born pianist. And when he was a young man in his teenage years, uh, he, he tells the story of how he went through a, a season of a personal crisis. He didn't reveal what it was, but something that was affecting him significantly, so significantly that it was even impacting his, his practicing of the piano. Eventually, someone, a family member or a friend, decided to take him to visit Emil von Sauer. Von Sauer was a famous German pianist. Von Sauer was the last living student of Franz Liszt. And Liszt had studied under Beethoven. So you see the connection. Fold's a young boy struggling with Some personal crisis, someone takes him to go visit von Sauer. Von Sauer was the last living student at that time of Franz Liszt, and Liszt had studied under the great Beethoven. Folds sat in von Sauer's living room in front of a piano, and eventually von Sauer told him that he wanted him to start playing on the piano. So Folds sat down and began to play. And he played, and he played, and eventually what he was expecting was von Sauer would stop him and critique him and tell him what he was doing wrong and try to help him be encouraged to be a better pianist. But he didn't stop him. He told him to keep playing, and when he came to the end of whatever piece he was playing, he told him to play some more and play some more and over and over again. Folds would be playing the piano as von Sauer listened Folds eventually finished all of the pieces that he had in front of him and von Sauer came over to him, brushed his hair off of his forehead and gave him a kiss on his forehead. And he said this to him, that kiss was entrusted to me by Franz Liszt and Liszt received it from Beethoven. Beethoven kissed Liszt, Liszt kissed me and now I am kissing you I'm passing the kiss of Beethoven on to you be encouraged and go be a good steward of it there's been intense scholarly debate about those kisses some question whether the event ever took place some suggest that it was something illicit Others have argued that von Sauer was insincere and wasted that kiss on a young, foolish youth named Folds. The debate ruins the beauty of the image. It's so easy for us to get mired in the debates about the minutia of the Lord's Supper, and we can lose sight of the beauty of the picture that God gives to us in the Supper. In the Lord's Supper, in a sense, God Kisses us to remind us of a number of things. He reminds us of the truth and the unity of his word. That the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Of the fact that he would reconcile himself to his people one day. That was foreshadowed in God's saving his people out of Egypt. And in the celebration of the Passover. And that was finally being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that we have this sign that is pointing us to Jesus's life and death and resurrection. The fact that it has been that he has fully and finally secured our acceptance and a redemption for all eternity. The Lord's Supper is is a reminder as a seal that God's promises and blessings are guaranteed for those who partake in genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper Reminds us of the unity, the fellowship that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and now who are living around the world. And it reminds us that one day Jesus is coming again to end pain and suffering and persecution and sin and death and to bring our eternal reward. John Calvin, in looking at the first Corinthians 10 passage, said this. Let us carefully observe then. When we wish to use the sacraments as God has ordained, that they should be like ladders for raising us on high. For we are heavy and cumbersome, held down by earthly things. Thus, because we are unable to fly high enough to draw near to God, He has ordained sacraments for us like ladders. If a man wishes to leap on high, he will break his neck in the attempt. But if he steps, he is able to proceed with confidence." So also, if we are to reach our God, let us use the means which he has instituted for us, since he knows what is suitable for us. The sacraments are one key element in the gradual process of Christian growth. They are like ladders that we may go up one rung at a time, coming ever to deeper fellowship with our Lord, to deeper knowledge of his redemption, to deeper gladness and strength in what he has promised. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed with thankfulness as we consider the fact that you in your providence in your holy will and your goodness, you have provided helps for us. You have provided the Lord's Supper to nourish and to strengthen us and to point us once again to our Savior. And we grieve because we have not been able to partake in the Lord's Supper as we are used to. I pray, Father, that as we meditate on your word, as we meditate on the blessing that the Lord's Supper is to your people, that you would once again inspire us and move in us to have a deeper appreciation and desire for your word and for your sacraments. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. And even when we are not able to partake, you provide everything that we need for our faith. You strengthen us as we need. So we pray, Father, that even in those times when we're not able to partake, that we would rest and trust in your provision to us, ultimately in our Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen.